just by way of reminder, next Sunday, uh, Chris Osnes is going to be uh, conducting the service, and he's also be going to be baptizing some people. So if you are interested in being baptized, if you have uh, converted, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have not been baptized, uh, next week is your opportunity to do so. You know, it's interesting, actually, in the passage this morning that we're going to be going through, we'll see that there were a whole bunch of baptisms right after they got saved. Um, that doesn't happen that often anymore. Um, but it, if you read the Bible, there's a lot of times where people get baptized right, right there. They find some water somewhere and get baptized. So we are in Acts chapter 16. So if you have a pulpit Bible, or a pew Bible rather, or your own Bible, why don't you open up to Acts chapter 16. It's an interesting chapter. There's a lot of different characters in the uh, chapter. Apostle Paul and and Silas are the two primary characters, but they're introduced to a variety of different people along this pathway that they are taking. They're going out on their second missionary journey. Actually, it would be Silas' first missionary journey. Paul's first missionary journey, he went with Barnabas. And then Barnabas and Paul had a parting of the ways uh, after the council there in Jerusalem. Barnabas, he was the guy who would always come alongside of people and just encourage them. His name actually means son of encouragement. Um, And he wanted to take John Mark with him again, but John Mark had left them, of course, during their first missionary journey. He was a young guy and We don't really know. The scriptures don't really tell us exactly why he went back to Jerusalem, but he did leave the work. Paul didn't think that was a good thing to have happen, and when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the second missionary journey, they had a parting of the ways. It was actually uh, very spirited, and Paul decided to take Silas with him. And so from this point forward, we really follow Paul and Silas. Uh, But Paul becomes the centerpiece. We don't really hear about Barnabas much anymore. Um, Mark, of course, ends up writing the gospel to Mark. And Paul references Mark in in some of his epistles, and he's involved in ministry with Paul. So they obviously mended their ways. But here in Acts chapter 16, Paul comes to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. And actually, uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother were believers, probably converted during Paul's first missionary journey through this region, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. And, you know, I think as you, you can go over this first verse and not think about this, but it's an interesting thought. Paul's returning to Derby and then to Lystra. Do you remember what happened in Lystra? Anybody want to? Re- Paul got stoned. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'd want to return to a community that had stoned me. So don't read over that too flippantly. I mean, right there, Paul is returning to Lystra, this place where he had been stoned, left for dead, but he's coming back because ministry for Paul is superseding any fear that he might have. And so he he, he meets up with this young man, Timothy. He's impressed by Timothy. Timothy's mother and grandmother are believers. His father, however, is a Greek, uh, which means he's non-Jewish. And the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. And Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, you can read that and you can think, well, hold it. Didn't we just read in Acts chapter 15 this whole big conference over the issue of circumcision and whether or not circumcision was necessary for someone to 
uh, have done so that they could enter into the body of Christ. And of course, the, the point that won the day was that you did not need to be circumcised in order to become a believer uh, as a Jewish male. But here, it's a totally different issue. It's not a question of salvation. Paul's not circumcising Timothy in order to show him to be saved. He's circumcising Timothy because Timothy is half Jewish. And they're going to be ministering to a lot of Jewish people. And Paul wants to remove any type of hindrance that might keep the gospel from going forth or from being received. Because Paul's habit was to always go into a new community and the first thing he would do would go to the synagogue and he would meet with the Jews. His pattern was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so Paul did not want to take Timothy, this half-Jewish young man, and have any type of hindrance that would keep him from presenting the gospel. It's much, what, much like what I presented a couple weeks ago. You know, we need to be culturally relevant, but uh, theologically conservative. And what that means is that Paul became all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. He was able to communicate to the culture he was going into. And here he's going into a primarily Jewish culture. So he has Timothy circumcised. It's not a question of uh, salvation. It's a question of cultural relevance so that the message can be received. And so they travel from town to town and they deliver the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew in numbers. Those of you who weren't here last week should really go on to the podcast and listen to Jeff's teaching on Acts 14 and 15. He really nailed it. It was a a wonderful presentation of the issues that were being confronted there in the council in Jerusalem. The law versus grace, circumcision versus no works necessary in order to be received by God. So I I really encourage you to do that. But here they're delivering that message and the churches are strengthened in faith and they're growing in numbers, just like every church should be. Every church should have this testimony of it. They should be strengthening in their faith and growing daily in their numbers. That's how the gospel is meant to be going forth. That's how churches are uh, planned by God to, to exist. So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So it's interesting here. Paul and his companions, Timothy and Silas, are traveling throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And that is what is today modern-day Turkey, essentially. And so they're going through this region where they have been before, but Paul is always wanting to reach new areas. So he's trying to reach out to the province of Asia, but somehow the Holy Spirit uh, convinced them that they were not to go to that area. And they wanted to go to Missy or into Bithynia then, and the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. And it th- doesn't really say to us here how the Spirit of Jesus uh, kept them from going to those new um, places, but clearly... The Spirit did, and so Paul uh, had this vision and ends up going to Macedonia, which is across the Aegean Sea over there into the region of Greece, into uh, Europe. It's interesting how God leads us. You know, uh, if we truly believe that we serve a living God, and if that living God is interested in and concerned with our lives, then I think we ought to accept the notion that God has 
a plan and a purpose for us. And he's trying to direct us in that plan and purpose. He's not just sitting in some far-off throne saying, well, whatever. Whatever, you know, regardless of what Bud Light may say. God is not saying that. He's very interested in your life. And he's very specific about what he wants your life to look like and where he wants you to go and what he wants you to do. And there's a variety of ways that God leads us. The primary way is through this word. Psalm 119, verse 105 said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So as we get into the word, God illuminates our path, shows us the way we should go, helps us to see things that we ought to do. So that's the primary way we are led by God is through this word. But God also leads us in a a variety of other ways. He leads us through circumstance. Have you experienced that in your life where perhaps you've gone through a series of circumstances and then you look back and you say, oh my gosh, that was God getting me here. You know, and the the, the word tells us that. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And then in Proverbs 16, 9, it says, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we're at work. We think we're doing our lives, you know, and we're controlling them, but really it's God who's sort of gently moving us through life. And we sometimes know it, and sometimes we don't. Other times, God leads us through Christian fellowship. You know, it says in in Hebrews chapter 10 that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. But all the more as we see the day approaching, we should gather together and spur one another on to love and good deeds. So when you guys come together, either here on Sunday morning or in a Bible study on a Monday night or at lunch with a friend, uh, and you get together and, and you talk over what's going on in your lives, oftentimes God is using you as iron to sharpen iron. You are a tool in his hands to help direct someone else. Or perhaps someone else is directing you through that Christian council. So it's really important that we come together as believers because so much happens when we come together. Some of it we understand, some of it we don't. But God said we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And then some ways are more supernatural. And we're a little bit less comfortable with these supernatural ways. You know, the Bible, uh, Christian fellowship, a circumstance, we can sort of deal with that. But then there's some areas of God's guidance that we're a little less comfortable with. It's a little more awkward for us. But one of those uh, is given right here in Acts 16. Paul had a vision. You know, in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoting uh, the, the prophet said that in the last days, your young men will dream dreams and your old men will see visions. So there's going to be dreams and visions by which God directs you. Now, I've never had a vision. I've never had anything like this happen to me, but I have had dreams from which I have awoken and known that God was, much like he did with Joseph, communicating something to me. So don't exclude the supernatural from how God might want to direct your life. And then, of course, there's prophecy. Um, I think it's in Acts 21, uh, where Agabus, the prophet, prophesies over Paul and tells him what's going to happen in the days ahead for him. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be bound by those in leadership in Jerusalem. 
And Paul says, well, okay, if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen, but I'm heading to Jerusalem. So sometimes God supernaturally uses, oftentimes, other believers who speak a prophetic word into our lives that tells us, this is where I want you to go, or perhaps this is where I don't want you to go. And we need to be open to that, hearing the, that, and, and, and re- recognizing that sometimes God does work in supernatural ways in our lives. He oftentimes takes our lives in very ordinary paths, seemingly, and then we look back and say, oh, that was pretty supernatural. But other times it's very supernatural, and we know it right off the bat. So God guides us. Let him guide your life. Understand that he wants you to walk in the light as he is in the light, and he has a means whereby he's going to direct you. So from Troas, we put out to the sea, and sailed straight from Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now, Philippi, a Roman colony, was essentially a place that Rome had sent by force, oftentimes, by direction, Roman citizens, and said, you are going to live in this region. It was usually a a significant geographic area, had some kind of Um, strategic value and so they wanted to have Roman citizens and the Roman way of life represented in these areas and so that's what Philippi was it was a Roman colony these Roman citizens would be sent there to carry out the Roman way of life and they had some benefit from being uh, forcibly removed from Rome or from the the peninsula of Italy to these places the primary uh, benefit was that they didn't have to pay taxes So this is uh, a a Roman colony, a leading city there in the district of Macedonia, and there they stayed. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, this is interesting because, again, it's a leading city, large population, and yet Paul did not find a synagogue here because every city where there were 10 Jewish males, they would have a synagogue, and they would gather together on the Sabbath, and they would teach the law. Here, Paul did not find a synagogue. So there obviously was not a large Jewish population here. But he did find that there was a place of prayer where people would gather. And it was interesting, as he went down to the river, they sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So there's not 10 Jewish males to set up a synagogue, but there are Jewish women who have come to this place by the river to pray doesn't mention that there are men. Now, interestingly, in Paul's vision, he saw a man crying out saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And yet, here Paul encounters a group of women praying. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So she was probably a representative of the guild there in Thyatira, had come to Philippi, was uh, doing business there. But she was also a worshiper of God. That is, that she sought God Um, She did not know the gospel message. She had not heard about Jesus, but she was a worshiper. Her heart was open to God. And it says here that the Lord then further opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, interesting, Paul is a Jewish rabbi. That was how he was raised. He was a keeper of the law. He was fervent. He was strident even in how he uh, would convey the law and carry it out. And here... He's speaking to a group of women. So this is an indication of how much Paul's heart had been changed by Jesus. 
Because the Jewish rabbis taught that it was better to burn the law than to teach a woman. And so here we have this Jewish rabbi who sat under the feet of Gamaliel, who is coming to these, this group of women, and he's sharing with them God's good news of salvation in his son Jesus Christ. Just that progression of change. Women have oftentimes, uh, I think, had the, the sense that in churches perhaps, and uh, certainly in, in perhaps more conservative churches, that they have sort of a second-class uh, ranking, which nothing could be further from the truth. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see very clearly that Jesus was ministered to uh, primarily by women. They followed him, and they met his needs. And yeah, he had the 12 apostles and, and so forth, uh, but women were a primary aspect of Jesus' ministry. And here we see Paul putting aside that old rabbinical past and engaging these women with the gospel message. So when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us, river right there, so they had some water available, baptized them right off the bat. She invited us to her home. If you considered me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. So interesting, conversion. You know, there's a lot of people who attend churches who have not been converted, who have not followed the, the, the gospel pattern. The very first words that you read in the gospel of Mark that Jesus spoke were repent and believe the gospel. So there's that repent term. And repentance is a key aspect of what we have to do in order to be positioned to believe the gospel. Repentance is all about, of course, turning around. We're going one direction, and if we repent of that direction, then we turn around. We recognize we're going the wrong way. We turn around, and we go the opposite way. That's what repentance is. And repentance is very important in the gospel message because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. We, we are all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. The, the, the preface for being able to believe that you can be saved and taken to heaven is to understand that you are absolutely deserving of hell. Now, I know those are harsh words, and sometimes people don't like to hear that, but it's true. We're all headed on a pathway to hell. And we hear the gospel message, and we have to make a decision. We have to recognize we're going the wrong way. And we have to turn around. And once we've turned, then we're in a position to believe the gospel and to receive the free gift of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so here... Lydia, her heart was open to God, said she was a worshiper of God, and yet her, her phrase there, she, she is recognizing the grace that has been bestowed upon her. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them. Her heart had been changed. The Lord had opened up her heart. She had turned around, and she brought these uh, ministers into her home and fed them. And we're going to see in this next story someone who's quite different situation from Lydia, but who has the same experience in receiving the gospel. So once when we were going to the place of prayer, so obviously after this experience they would go back there regularly, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, it's, there's a couple of interesting things that I want to point out here. First, the woman was accurately communicating who Paul and Silas were, wasn't she? She said, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So you look at that and you think, okay, what's wrong with that? Well, do, back in, in Luke chapter 4, there's a passage of Scripture where Jesus would uh, cast demons out of people and as they would come out of the the person they would cry out you are the son of god and they would testify of jesus that he was indeed the son of god because the demons believe and shudder james wrote and jesus would not allow them to speak he would tell them to be silent the first thing that we need to be concerned about with demonic presence is there is the opposition of demonic presence the fact that demons want to destroy us but Perhaps more dangerous to us is when demons try to align themselves with us. And that's what was happening here. So that's interesting that these, this de- demonic presence in this young girl was giving a correct message, but it was not something that Paul wanted to have happen. The second thing that I find interesting here is in verse 18, it says she kept this up for many days. Now, sometimes we think of the Apostle Paul and we think he had it all together. It's like he absolutely knew what was going on at every moment, at every turn. Well, I think that she kept this up for many days because Paul really didn't know for sure what the spirit behind this message was initially. But ultimately, that became uh, known to him. He discerned that spirit and he cast it out. So I think sometimes we have to give ourselves a break and recognize that it takes a while for us to figure things out as human beings, especially spiritual things like this. You know, we're not always absolutely tuned into that. It took Paul several days before this happened. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. This would be the Bema seat where they would face the magistrates. And they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, the inner cell was the darkest, dankest part of the prison. Human refuse typically abounded there. There was no light in that portion of the prison, very little air to breathe. That's where they put their most desperate uh, prisoners, the prisoners that they absolutely did not want to escape. So that's what they considered Paul and Silas. And in that setting, in the inner prison, where he could not see any light, where it smelled of refuse, no doubt rats moving around, very difficult to breathe, the air was very heavy, Paul and Silas began to pray and to sing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I'm not exactly sure if that's the action I would first think of 
in that setting. I don't know about you, but if I'm in that setting, I'm going to be pretty disturbed. And yet, Paul and Silas begin to pray and sing. And the power of prayer and praise cannot be really fully quantified. You know, in the Old Testament, whenever uh, they would go, Ju- uh, uh, whenever Israel would go to battle, they would always send Judah first. Judah would always lead them into battle. And do you know why that is? Because Judah, the term Judah, the name Judah means praise. So praise led them into battle. And I think that Paul recognized, Paul and Silas here recognize that they're in a spiritual battle. They've cast this demon out. The people have come against them. They're put into prison. But they begin to do spiritual warfare here through prayer and through praise, singing hymns to God. And note there that the other prisoners are listening to them. There's always someone watching your life, paying attention to what you do. How do you handle adversity? You say you're a Christian when times are good, but what about those times when things aren't so good? When your circumstances are difficult or even tragic people are watching paying attention are they truly going to walk the walk suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Now, it would have been very easy for Paul, in human sense, to think, "Ah, the jailer kills himself, we're out of here. We've got to escape. God's given us deliverance. But Paul saw in this jailer a soul to be saved. And so he did not allow that to happen. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer, just like the rest of the prisoners, had been listening to Paul and Silas pray and sing hymns to God to testify of their allegiance to this this God whom they loved. And the jailer was pricked in his heart. He knew something was different about these men, and when the jail experienced this earthquake, he knew something supernatural was happening. I had a a few experiences when I was working at uh, Human Services in Mesa County. Um, Very early on when I was working there, I started a Bible study, a lunchtime Bible study for uh, people who were interested. And we met in a conference room there in the building. And after several weeks, I don't know how many weeks there were, probably about six or seven weeks of this Bible study, a complaint was made about me holding a Bible study in government um, property. So the director at that time came to me and said, you can't continue your Bible study. I said, okay, you know, what are you going to do? That would have been, I don't know, mid-90s or so, something like that. But a few years later, planes flew into two towers in New York. Of course, you all know, 9-11. Same director who told me that I couldn't do the Bible study came to me and asked me to lead a service at lunch that day. This is the same conference room where I was doing my Bible study. And I got a chance to testify of God's sovereignty and God, the fact that, yeah, this is happening, but God's in control. And we prayed together, we sang a hymn. And it's just God's way of working. 
One door closes, another door opens. But people are paying attention. That same director who told me I couldn't do the Bible study asked me to lead a service on 9-11 there at work. So you never know how things are going to work out. Here, Paul and Silas are in the inner prison. They begin to pray and sing. An earthquake occurs, and this guy is up asking them, what must I do to be saved? Now, notice that Paul does not say, well, you've got to be circumcised on the eighth day, and then, you know. No, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Clearly, the man had repented. He recognized a need in his life. He understood, I've got to turn around. There's something about my life that is sinful. What must I do to be saved? And so he was ready to receive the message of Jesus Christ. And he got it from Paul and Silas. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, the fruits of repentance. He's taking these men whom he had put in the inner prison and put in stocks now and washing their wounds. And immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, much like Lydia, And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let us or let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, this is important. Paul later will see um, when he's back in Jerusalem, will assert his Roman citizenship and appeal to Caesar and go through a process that takes him back to Rome. And it doesn't say here why he didn't appeal to Caesar when they first took him before the magistrates. Perhaps it all happened very fast and he didn't have the opportunity, but here he is using his Roman citizenship to say what they did was unlawful. Because every Roman citizen, before they were punished, had the right to be heard and to, to have their situation um, considered in a very pro- uh, process-oriented way. That did not occur here. So Paul is definitely wanting to communicate to this community of Philippi that we are not prisoners, we are not lawbreakers. This message that we are giving of Christianity is not outlaw. It is, is not something that, um, you know, we should not be doing. And so the magistrates received this report. They heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and they were alarmed because they knew that they had violated their rights as Roman citizens. And they came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they And then from there, they left. Chris, when he uh, sent out his pastor e-news this week, gave a really great exhortation about ministering from where you are. You know, there's, there's not necessarily ministry that's going to occur when you get somewhere or when you achieve a certain status, but just to minister from that vocation that you are in, wherever you're working, whatever you're doing, whatever your locale, You are a minister. And that's what I see in this chapter. Paul's in a bunch of different places. He's in the church there in in Lystra and Derby, and he he takes this young man, Timothy, and and begins to disciple him, take him out into the field of of missions work. Then he meets this woman at uh, the river, at a place of prayer, and leads her to the Lord. 
And then he going through the city. Ex, what's the term? Exercises a demon from a girl. Thank you. Yeah, exercise just doesn't sound right, does it? Um, you know, just wherever he was, whatever he was doing in prison, you know, whatever he's doing, he's just letting the light of the Lord shine through him. And, and that's what I sort of take from this passage because wherever he was, he, he was ministering. He was doing the work. He was sharing the light. And that's what we need to, to take from this passage, I think, is that God has a plan for us. He wants to direct us, and he wants to, through us, reach this lost and dying world with the message of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that always teaches us something. Even if we've read through the passage a hundred times, Lord, there's always something new we can pick up from it. And I just thank you for this passage here in Acts chapter 16, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill each and every believer here this morning to go forth wherever they are at and to to do the work of ministry that you have called them to do. I know, Lord, that you will do that, and I give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to receive offering now, so if the ushers would prepare, uh, and Alicia, I think you're going to come over and play something for us. Um, We're going to worship the Lord through our giving. Now we are going to uh, close in a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
Well, alrighty. Let's take a hand and circle around, and we will go through some joys and concerns. Hi. All right, I'm just going to start off with asking all of you to continue to pray for me. I'm in a transition period, as is our church, uh, leaving in my current place of employment. And you know, in a relay, the, the most uh, dangerous part of the race is the handoff, where the <laughs> baton, baton is being handed off. You can drop the baton, and we don't want to do that. So please just keep me in your prayers, keep the church in your prayers, and all the various ministries and the people who are doing the work. Um, it's an important time in our church, exciting time, um, but definitely a time for prayer. So if you would mind doing that. Others with praises, joys, concerns. Chris, Kelly. <laughs> yes. Amen. God's still at work. Yeah, Kita. All right. Praise God for that. Had a couple of knee surgeries and I didn't come back that fast. Okay, others? Oh, yep, Jody. All right. Turn my power. 